We're going through this series on what it means to abide in Christ, to combat spiritual drift. But before we do, it's the first Sunday of the month, and so I like to kind of highlight different um, goals, heart, soul, mind, and strength that I'm kind of focusing on in the month ahead. And this is just kind of a spurring on to love and, and good deeds that I throw out there to say, I'm very much in process as a follower of Jesus, and I just use Jesus' command to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength as a way to kind of think about four dimensions of my life, heart, relationships, soul, interiority, prayer life, worship life, mind, growing in my understanding of the Bible and what it means to live out of a Christian worldview, and strength, serving, and giving. And so I just use those as a quadrant every month and sit down and pray and say, God, what are themes or things that I, I need to be growing in that, that uh, it might be wise for me to be focusing on. And that just kind of keeps me sharp in terms of not just kind of getting into a rut, keeps things creative. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. And I like to share this so that, again, we're all reminded we're always in process. And maybe as I share something, you might say, hey, that's helpful. I want to try that myself. So heart, and this will come out of my message today, <laughs> it came out of preparation for this message. I just realized um, I just live at a very high level of intensity in terms of even my thoughts. It's hard for me to just relax and have fun. So I've really said this month, I, got, I really got to focus on just having some fun with friends and you know, Heather's been away for two weeks and just reconnecting and just having fun together. I, I often don't allow myself that much time for that release valve and I, I, I want to, uh, yeah, I want to carve out some time to make that a priority this month. In my prayer life, I want to continue to learn how to pray the scriptures. That's been really fruitful for me. There have been times where I just don't know what to pray about a situation, and I'll just flip somewhere in the Bible, read the verse, turn that verse into a prayer, and apply it to what I'm um, thinking about or wrestling with or burdened by. And that's been really, really helpful, and it's really causing my prayer life to become quite rich. Mind, I've just been obsessed lately with trying to figure out um, what I would call cultural currents, philosophies, and ideas that are kind of undergirding a lot of movements within our culture, and I've just been reading and watching a lot of videos and interviews that, uh, of people who are kind of doing that depth level of analysis, and I love thinking about that. I can't think about it all the time because your mind kind of explodes after a while. It's, it's pretty intense, but I'm in a real fixation on that stuff right now, and I'm really enjoying it, and then evaluating, obviously, those ideas from a biblical perspective. And lastly, there's just been a lot of opportunities for me and my family to serve our, our literal neighbors, like people around us, and I've really tried to be attentive to that and to kind of put offers on the table to our neighbors. And that's been really fruitful. And so I just want to continue to just be prayerfully going through my day and proactively looking for opportunities to serve and to help and to bless the people that God has put right around us. So as we move through John chapter 15, we're learning what it means to abide in Jesus. Abide is an old school word. Some of your translations may have it. Some might just say remain. But the idea is that we actually do have to learn to abide in Christ. Because the natural tendency for all of us is to kind of spiritually drift into a place of just kind of status quo and then maybe even a weakening of the relationship. Which shouldn't be surprising for anybody who has significant relationships in their life because the reason why those relationships are significant is that you continue to fight and pour energy into them because the default for relationships is kind of stagnation and then a weakening. So in any, any quality relationship, relationship, whether it's a close friendship or a marriage, you've got to be fighting to remain and abiding in that relationship. But we're not trying to do this through 
the door, as it were, of willpower and like we're not doing enough and we really got to secure our position in Christ. Our position in Christ has been secured for us by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. What we're trying to do is learning to just live in rhythm with Jesus every day. We're not striving in the sense of, well, if I do this and do this, then God will bless me and love me and I'll be a part of his family. No, no, no. We have been adopted. We are part of his family. We are redeemed. We are now saints in Christ. We're just learning to continue to live into that, right? We are now married to Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. We're not striving in order to stay married or to get married. We are married. We're in a relationship. We are learning to live in such a way that that relationship, that communion is strengthened. And so that we are close and we experience intimacy with Jesus and experience depth and fruitfulness in our lives as a result. So we've talked about characteristics of of Christians who grow in depth and fruitfulness, not just in the short term, but long term. They, They build rituals into their lives, which are highly intentional habits. They maintain accountability through friendships and small groups and Sunday morning and different gatherings. They grow through their hardships. Instead of seeing hardships as an impediment to spiritual growth, they choose to look at them as ways to further glorify God, press into God's purposes, and love and serve their neighbors. And then they practice spiritual disciplines, some of the common ones, you know, reading their Bible, praying, gathering together on a Sunday morning, worship. So they understand the importance of doing these things. And again, they're establishing all their activity in the gospel of grace. And that's what I just referred to. They're not doing these things from a place of insecurity. Oh no, if I don't do these things, God's not going to love me or I'm going to get unadopted or unsaved. And it's none of that. You're secure in Christ. So now the pressure's off and we're just simply learning to amend our lives to be in rhythm with Jesus. Today, I'd like to talk about the importance of self-care as a kind of spiritual discipline. Now, this is a strange topic. It might sound like a strange topic to some people because many Christians associate the term self-care with concepts of self-indulgence or selfishness. And self-care, particularly in our culture, often gets wedded to ideas like loving yourself or maybe more explicitly loving yourself first, putting yourself first. And that can and should set off theological alarm bells in the mind of a Christian who may wonder if there's any difference between loving yourself and living a self-centered life. A Christian absolutely should seriously reckon with Jesus' call to discipleship. One of the foundational calls, one of the, in a sense, gatekeeper calls, where Jesus says, just so we're on the same page, if you are going to be my disciple, don't just say, yeah, that, that's great, I'll just follow you. You need to understand what you're signing up for. And in Mark 8, he says this, then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples. All this excitement, all oh, this is Jesus, this is pretty neat, I want to get on board. Okay, maybe you do. Let me tell you what this means and what it's going to mean for you. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow me, I want to be a Christian, I want to give my life to you, Jesus. That person must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So this is very clearly a call to reject a self-centered life. Just break this up a little bit. First of all, Jesus says, if you're going to follow him, you've got to deny yourself. And that means 
giving up anything that we would want or seek that would hinder our doing the will of God. So it doesn't mean that if you want something, it's automatically wrong or automatically self-centered. What it means is we take what we want, what we would prefer, and what we'd naturally gravitate towards, we take that off the throne of our heart and say, maybe some of those things might be good things, but they no longer become, we don't, we don't give them ultimate power to determine how we live. They get taken off the throne. Jesus and his kingdom puts, is put on the throne. So it's now about making sure that we live for Jesus and not just for our own desires. He says, take up your cross. So you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. What's a cross for? In a first century context, it's very obvious what a cross is for. Maybe not so much, uh, not so much for us. It's not as obvious for us. And in fact, culturally, we often use the term, we all have a cross to bear, to essentially connect the cross with carrying a burden. And there is that, that's certainly an element of what it means to pick up your cross, but that is not what Jesus wants these people, this crowd, and would want us to hear first and foremost. A cross is an instrument of death and total sacrifice. If you pick pick up your cross, what you're not thinking is, well, I guess I'm being asked to carry a burden for the next 10, 20, 30 years. If you're picking up a cross, you are walking the green mile. You're going to be dead in a number of days. Life as you know it is over. It's not carrying a burden in the midst of your everyday regular life. It is your life is coming to an end. So it has a much sharper angle to it than just going, um, going through hardships. And if we don't understand that, sometimes what Christians can do is they can take this idea of taking up your cross and the cross simply is a burden and almost use it to amplify their hardships and miseries to advertise to other Christians that they're so spiritual. Because I'm carrying all these burdens. We all have our cross to bear. I have more. And, oh, you know, but I'm, I'm doing it for God. And they're kind of advertising and amplifying their misery as a way to appear spiritual, which is neither spiritual, it's not mature, and it's not what Jesus is even talking about here. The cross is symbolic to death, to a self-centered way of life. It means Jesus is saying you can no longer live as if God isn't real and as if God isn't king and Lord. So if you're going to follow me, you have to put to death you being seated on the throne and now it's God. And you have to think through what are the ramifications of that for every area of my life? Finances, sexuality, friendships, recreation, you name it. How does Jesus being Lord, and now he's the leader of my life, how does that change how I live my life? And so taking up your cross refers to giving your whole life to God. So it does involve, obviously, bearing burdens for God's glory, but it's deeper than that. It's about total dedication. And then when Jesus, Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, now learn how to live by following me. Like we read in Matthew 7, don't just hear my teachings. Start putting them into practice. And so, yes, central to Jesus' call is a decentralization of the self and a centralization of God and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you, Jesus says in Matthew 6.33. So in short form, becoming a Christian means saying, I don't know, I don't understand exactly all the ramifications for this, 
but I want to live um, in such a way that the song that I sing every day is not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. I don't know what that means. I'm still figuring it out. I'm learning. I'm making false steps. But that is the song I keep coming back to. It's not, God, would you bless my will? And then I'll throw you a few bones here and there. It's, God, your will be done, not mine. Now, let's come back into this idea of self-care, because that can sound selfish. But what I want us to think through is the idea that taking time in your life to do responsible self-care is actually an important way that you can deny yourself. Again, that might sound a little bit contradictory, but taking time to do responsible self-care is actually a way that you can glorify God by denying yourself. As Peter Brain notes, self-care done through the lens and done with the ultimate goal to glorify God and to do good for our neighbors is simply a way of ensuring that we will remain effective in the work that God God has called us to do in our lives. So self-care, when our goal is to glorify God, to build on Jesus, to live for him, self-care becomes a way that we ensure that we're going to remain effective, or to use the language of John 15, to ensure that we will remain fruitful, that we abide so that Week after week, month after month, year after year, there's fruitfulness, and we don't burn out. Because burning out and um, having our lives implode from the inside out because of a lack of self-care does not bring glory to God, and it does not allow us to effectively serve God's purposes in the world and love our neighbor. And so responsible self-care, I would argue, emerges from good theology, good biblical theology. If you're created in God's image, if you're redeemed in Christ, if you are gifted by the Spirit, and if you are called into mission, then who you are in your totality matters to God. And if Jesus' teaching is that, uh, uh, that, that it's through us bearing fruit that God is glorified, then the following question should be very, very important and should become important for us individually and as a church. How can I best structure my life so that I can effectively and sustainably grow in my ability to love God and serve other people? That is essentially, that's a question that involves self-care. There's more to it than self-care, but that question has to include the dimension of self-care. How do I structure my life so that I can effectively and sustainably love God, and serve my neighbor. Self-care, I would argue, should be a priority for a Christian because responsible self-care keeps your batteries charged, it keeps your spirits renewed so that you can sustainably live with spiritual vibrancy. So that is my little theology of self-care. And now I just want to transition right to core practices of self-care that through my reading, research, my own experience, there's a lot you could talk about. I'm just going to talk about six ones that are kind of core. So the first one is sleep. It's important to be getting proper physiological rest. There are more and more studies that are emerging You'll know this if you've ever experienced times of sleeplessness or insomnia or had extended times of 
chronic sleep debt, that sleep disorders and chronic sleep loss just wreak havoc on all physiological systems and, and psychological mechanisms. Sleep disorders and chronic sleep loss put you at risk for heart disease, heart attack, heart failure, irregular heartbeat, high blood pressure, stroke, diabetes. It leads to pretty rapid impairment of cognitive functions. You don't think as well. Long and short-term memory are um, impeded. Your ability to think and just process information that you need to on an everyday life is impeded. You're at greater risk for depression and anxiety and for weight gain. In Jeremiah 31, God is telling the prophet Jeremiah what he's going to do for his people now that they've been exiled to Babylon and he's going to bring them back in a post-exilic period, post-exile. He's going to return them. The exile became this metaphor for being cut off from God's love as punishment for their sins. And God says, I'm I'm not going to leave them in that state. I'm going to bring them back. And God says, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. And Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked around, and my sleep had been pleasant to me. It's important for us to get proper sleep. And, you know, there's different uh, metrics of, you know, whether it's six hours or eight hours or ten hours. It's different for every person, but it's important. And if you struggle with sleep, if you are in a phase of life where that is a challenge for you, that I would encourage you to move heaven and earth and, and uh, talk to your doctor, uh, therapist, different people. Go all hands on deck to put as many um, supports in place so that you get proper sleep. Because when we are properly rested physiologically, many, many things flow much easier. And you can have a lot of other things in place. And if sleep debt keep, keeps accumulating, that is a massive impairment to being able to enter into fully the life that God has for you. Number two, exercise. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 says, this is Paul writing to younger protege Timothy, he says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, unfortunately, this verse has been used to to, to de-emphasize the importance of exercise and physical training. Because Paul is saying, well, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. But this is why the context of the verse is important. Because in a first century world, there's only two people, there's only two occupations that actually engage in what we would think about today as exercise and physical training. Do you know what they are? Soldiers, one. Say it louder, I can't hear you. And athletes. They're the only people. They're the only people who do physical training. And the reason is because for everybody else, life demands a high degree of physical aptitude to just get through your day. Very few people have sedentary jobs in the first century. Your life, you are moving most of the day. Now, if you're a soldier or an athlete, you have to move into a very different kind of level of fitness. So you have to move into a kind of physical training. So what Paul is saying is that kind of training that a soldier and an athlete does, totally valuable. Godliness has even more value than that. But what we shouldn't infer from that is Paul saying, oh, don't worry about taking care of your body. Just, Just worry about godliness, this weird dualism. Don't worry about your body, just care about your soul. No, the point, I think, is that we have to look at that context and say, well, in this context, Paul doesn't need to say, 
you should take care of your body and exercise regularly because the vast majority of people just had to do that, right? Jesus doesn't take the bus to Galilee and then go down to Jerusalem. They're walking everywhere. Most people are farmers. It's an agrarian society. You are on your feet doing stuff all the time. You didn't have to coach people about the consequences of being sedentary. But today, you can be very sedentary. I was aware a few months ago, it is, it, it, it is very easy for me to spend 90% of my time in a 24-hour period lying down or sitting. I could do that if I wanted to. 90% of my time. And so in a sedentary culture, because of technology, and there's pros and cons, but one of the cons is we need to understand that we need to keep our bodies active. And as our bodies move, and I'm not talking about extreme athletic performance exercise, just moving your body for an hour a day, going for a walk, a light run, doing something, is, has tremendous physiological, psychological, emotional, and I would argue spiritual benefits. Physical training does have some value. And it's important that we're, wherever we are, whatever level of fitness, we're looking to grow in that area. Number three, nutrition. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I love that Paul connects glorifying God through the most basic elements of eating and drinking. Food and drink is fuel for your body, and so you need to learn how to fuel your body so that you can be strong and healthy. A lot of people look to food and exercise as two ways to achieve a certain look or a certain weight. Uh, So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about fad diets. I'm talking about saying, how do I fuel myself so that I have strength and energy through which to serve God and, and, and serve people? How do I use nutrition in order to strengthen and give me energy that I need to be able to serve God and serve my neighbor? Number four, Sabbath rest. Sabbath is a gift from God. Uh, We don't talk about it much in our culture. Our culture has kind of done away with, obviously, an institutional Sabbath of Sunday being the Lord's Day, but also just the concept. So kind of one day is the same. We just work and we're active and doing things all the time. But there's a really interesting thing that God um, puts in front of his people in Psalm 95. The psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Manasseh in the desert, or sorry, Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. And they don't, they don't know my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And it's interesting that in the Bible, not being able to rest, to have at least one day where you can pray and play and enjoy the good things of God's creation, that is instituted by God as a curse. But our culture has turned it into a virtue. If you are always active, if you are always productive, if you are always out there making things happen, wow, you're a mover and a shaker. God's perspective is you're cursed. You're under a curse. You're not free at all. Freedom means 
and again, I don't want to get legalistic about this, but generally speaking, being able to be active and work and productive for six days and being able to not be active and productive for one day in order to reflect and to refresh and to renew and to worship and to just enjoy the good things that God has given you and enjoy him in a way that's distinct from how you do that the other six days. And so I think part of renewal, and this is very difficult in our culture because now there's so few cultural supports and scaffolding to support a Sabbath. And so some of the stuff I read just say, try and schedule a half-day Sabbath, four or five-hour block of time. But I think the principle is God wants us to be able to have times of rest and reflection and just stop. Stop being so busy. Busyness is not next to godliness. Constantly being busy, God declares as a curse. Structure your life. Maybe start with a little window and then grow that window where you can enter God's rest. We live in a world that celebrates work and activity but ignores renewal and recovery. And it fails to recognize that both are required for sustained performance. A lot of people in our culture and maybe within the church struggle with apathy, just a dull sense of like, I don't have passion for kind of anything. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm depressed, but I, I'm not excited about life. I'm just kind of meh. And a lot of people struggle with chronic fatigue of just feeling like they can never f- fill their tanks enough to re-engage life in the way that they'd like to. And I was reading some research this week that says both chronic fatigue and apathy, which are big problems in our culture, quote, develop from being overly committed and involved in our work. We're just always trying to, and maybe it's not work for you, maybe it's just activities, family stuff, just the intensity of here's your schedule from morning till night, it's full and you're just on and you're redlining it and you're just going, pedal to the metal every day and just surviving and moving through it. That is not a healthy way to live. Do you know what the difference between a, um, an ambulance siren and a musical sonata is? Think about that for a second. What is the difference between an ambulance siren and a piece of music, a sonata? Yeah, one, of, one yeah, very negatively affects your nervous system. Do you know why it affects your nervous system that way, though? Because it's sustained intensity, and there's no pause, there's no break. Um, A siren is just constant blaring. And when you are living without pause, that's what your life feels like. God wants your life to feel like a sonata, a rhythm of this note, pause. That's how a life becomes beautiful, right? If you are just redlining through life and willpowering your way and just going at 100%, your life is just a siren. And you need to recognize that as a cry for help. And don't let people around you who are like, wow, look at, you know, you go girl, you go girl, that's amazing. You guys are just always on fire and moving forward. That is not necessarily uh, an encouragement. That might be an indictment. If you want your life to be beautiful, you have to build in pauses between the, the playing of the music. Saturday for me is a day of rest, and it is not always a day of rest for me. I get sucked into this all the time, so I'm very much in process for this, but this week I got all my work done that I needed to for Sunday, done on Friday at 4 p.m., and I was able to rest on Saturday. It makes a huge difference 
to be able to just disconnect and enjoy without having a low level of, well, I still got to tweak my sermon and, and do this and that and prepare and da 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 And you're trying to connect with your family and just do things while that interference is running. Sabbath is really important. Number five, just two more. Number five, recreation. And I said here, just having, having fun. It's really important to have fun. And I'm preaching to myself here. I love the word recreation because when you think about it, it's about recreation. That when we recreate well, when we're doing things that are actually recreational, we're recreating ourselves. We're kind of filling the tank and again being the, thank you, God, this is great. I'm being refreshed and renewed through these ways of, of enjoying the gifts that God has given us. In the book of Timothy, Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God. And then he says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God has given you friends and um, resources and possessions in your life that you are not just allowed, but encouraged to enjoy. You are not more spiritual if you can simply go through your life in stoic indifference to being... Um, to, to needing joy and needing laughter and just be like, I don't need these things, just minimalism and, you know, no, God sometimes gives us these things so that we can enjoy them and share that blessing with other people. And so self-care involves taking time to enjoy hunting and boating and board games and friends and quality entertainment, being able to laugh and relax and unwind in an unhurried, unpressured space. That is a gift from God. And like I said, I don't take enough intentional time to say, here's some time where I'm going to have fun and just enjoy something that I enjoy and do it through the lens of, thank you, God, that you've given me this gift. Thank you, God. And then I always end up feeling super refreshed and excited coming out of it. But I can just get trapped into a mode of intensity which um, isn't healthy or helpful. When you do take time to recreate, look for opportunities to involve other people. One of the first things that God says, well, the first thing that God says is not good in Genesis is it's not good for the man to be alone. Isolation is not how we were supposed to live. And so there are times for individual recreation, but there's also times where it's like, you know what? Instead of just playing a video game by myself, why don't I invite some people over and we can play together? Or we're going to have a board game night. Or instead of just going for a hike on my own, I already did that this week, why don't I invite one or two other people with me? Look for ways to involve other people, right? You're having a Super Bowl party? Invite your pastor. There's little things that we can all do <laughs> to show love, to extend grace, right? We all need a release valve, and you don't glorify God by living in a continual state of intensity, and that, is, that line is specifically for me. So we need to take time to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Lastly, um, we need to figure out a mechanism and a vehicle through which we can process our emotions. That's an important part of self-care. This usually has to be done with a, with a confidant, someone who has high, high trust, and we can be highly vulnerable with. You likely won't have more than one in your life. If you do, you're incredibly blessed. But... It, this comes out of the idea that as we carry burdens, as life layers on top of us and responsibilities and hardships and failures and the, the storms of life, as they compound and build upon us, we need a place, yes, in prayer, absolutely with God, casting our burdens 
and casting our cares on God. But one of the ways that God provides for that is that we also can share those burdens with other people. And we can process how it's affecting us with at least one person with whom we can be completely emotionally naked and honest. And we don't have to put up a pretense or self-censor what we're going to say and wonder, I, I hope this person understands that I'm saying this and not this. You can just be, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And I love that distinction between feeling something and being angry but not sinning. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. There's a great psychological insight there that to feel something, to feel something deeply, to feel frustrated, angry, to feel despairing, to feel crushed by grief, those things aren't sin. How do we process those in a way that leads to health and vibrancy? And the key there is how do we process those things? Not just minimize them, not just dismiss them, not just um, ignore them through, by, by spiritualizing, spiritualizing them away, right? Oh, I don't really need to talk or pray through these things because I'm just trusting in God. Yeah, part of how you trust in God, part of how you wait on the Lord, part of how you avail yourself to his grace is by in vulnerability approaching one or two people sometimes and saying, I just need to talk this out. I need to process this. Probably much more uh, easy for the average woman to do than the average man, but it's really important because if you do not transform your pain, if you do not allow God to transform your pain, you will transmit your pain. And what happens if you don't process it in a healthy way, honesty before God and at least one or two other close confidants, that energy and that anger, that resentment, whatever it is that is not a big deal that you're minimizing, it will go underground, but it will get, it'll get out. And it'll come out in passive aggressiveness or uh, not passive aggressiveness, but aggressiveness. And it will, you will transmit it to other people. So part of the way you love your neighbor is, not, is doing your own emotional work so that they don't have to be, deal with the brunt of you obfuscating that and just uh, living out a facade, but then they, you know, your kids, your spouse, your coworkers, they're, you're transmitting your pain to them. Part of the way we love our neighbor and honor God is by processing our pain in the context of a relationship. Two things that can help there, journaling. It doesn't even have to be long. Just write a sentence. Today, I am really ticked off about this. And then you just pray about it for a little bit. But just writing it out, speaking it out, sharing it with one person, that can be helpful. It can be a good first step. And then the other one is having a confidant that you know you can go to high trust and you can be highly vulnerable with. That's important. Okay, two temptations for self-care that I do want to address because I have seen these play out in my own life. I've seen them become a snare to other Christians. The first is for self-care to become an idol, right? I I thought, you know, can an emphasis on self-care and making sure that we're renewed and we're restored and that our tanks are filled and our batteries are charged, can't that lead to an idolization of the self? Absolutely it can. For sure it can. But Anything can become an idol in our lives. Any good thing can slowly over time snare us into becoming the thing that's on our throne, the thing that's dictating our lives. And so you don't avoid something good just because it could become an idol because then you'd avoid everything. 
What you do instead is you say, I want to focus on God and his kingdom. I want to continue to learn what it means to put God first so that all these other things, how I use my body, how I pursue self-care, my engagement with coworkers at work, all those things find their proper place. So the way you fight the idol of self-care is not to not do self-care. It's to do self-care through that lens of God. Teach me to do these things, not just so that I'm blessed and I'm healthy and I'm happy and I'm prosperous, but so that I can serve you more effectively and love my neighbor in a deeper way. And also be aware of the limits of self-care. This is, is probably the, the more tempting snare is that as we begin to experience self-care, maybe we're starting to get good rest and we're starting to just make little changes in our way we feed ourselves that's really healthy and we feel the effects of that. And it's like, wow, I feel a lot better. I feel really stronger and I feel... I'm more engaged in life, and I feel like things that were kind of closed are coming open. It's like, oh, this is really awesome. The, the temptation can then be to continue to make ever increasingly minute tweaks on things to, to, to keep moving into deeper and deeper levels of restoration, right? So what began is just making sure that we're getting good exercise can become exercise obsession. What began with making some dietary changes becomes restructuring your entire life around a very particular kind of way of eating and, and your, your whole day is now thinking about how you've structured your, your eating patterns or, or just being vigilant to you, you always have to get this amount of sleep and you know if there's an emergency and, and someone has to go to the hospital at 1 p.m., nope, nope, can't interfere with my sleep because that's so important, right? So these things can become dangerous because there is a limit to how much self-care we need. And that's obviously different for every person. But in general, I kind of say, you know, aim for like seven or eight out of 10. Like I have practices in here, whether it's nutrition or exercise or having fun, where you're like doing enough that you feel refreshed. But self-care probably doesn't look like making sure you're doing something super amazing fun every single day. Um, It just means you're doing these self-care things so that you're sufficiently strengthened to engage and serve God. Because there are people who can get on this track and all of a sudden you fast forward into a year and almost their whole life is now about micro tweaks that they can use to now be optimized to serve other people. We're never going to be optimized to serve other people or God's purposes in the world. If we're writing a paper, aim for solid B, B plus. The level of energy that it takes to take a B paper and make it an A plus it's just law of diminishing returns. It's not going to make that much of a difference if your aim is to serve God and to serve other people. Most people, if you're a B plus, most people are going to say, that was awesome. They don't need you to be A plus, fully charged, everything to the max. So beware of the limits of self-care and don't allow yourself to get snared into this law of diminishing returns where you're continuing to just make micro tweaks to maximize your potential as an individual. Just aim for solid across the board. So the idea of self-care, it may sound selfish because of that word. But taking the time to do responsible self-care can become, and I would argue needs to become, an important way through which you actually deny yourself and learn to follow Jesus more faithfully. When our aim is to glorify God and to serve our neighbors, self-care becomes a way of ensuring that we remain effective in the work that God has given us to do. And so may we set about this work and then sustain it through self-care practices that renew and refresh us by God's grace. Let's pray. 
God, we want to abide in you. We want to remain in you. We want our relationship with you to be strong. And making sure that we're taking advantage of some of these practices, that we're allowing ourselves to receive from you through these practices is an important part of that. And God, we ask for your forgiveness for some of the times that we have dismissed our need for self-care, hyper-spiritualized this idea that, well, our strength comes from God, so we don't need to do these things. But the effect has been, we've actually just been transmitting our fatigue. We've been transmitting our pain. We've been transmitting our unprocessed emotions. And it's really, we've just been avoiding doing important soul work you've asked us to do. God, teach us how to walk wisely and to structure our lives so that we can effectively serve you and your purposes in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.